Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolou. And we're coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIWFM.org. How are you, Bridget? Me? How am I? Yeah, we're approaching the Ides of February, also uh, the day of Valentine's. That's right, it is. It where is flowers are airing on, airing on Valentine's Day, and I am in Costa Rica. So there you go. You are currently, uh, you're, you are currently in the past and the future, you are. Uh, but flowers are expressions of uh, emotions and uh, gratitude and sometimes negotiations. Uh, what are you thinking, Valentine. like what, the, the mafia, like when they send one of those big... I'm uh, just saying, I, here's what I know. The best advice I got as, as a young lad, as a wee lad, was uh, don't go too big on Valentine's Day. <laughs> because it doesn't give you a lot of place to go after that so true so very very true um no i'm good i mean every, everything's great i'm really excited about our guest today marissa bridge she's an incredible artist i've profiled her before because she has very original artwork with this kind of paper rolling she does with her hands and then rolls these incredible flowers that are you know 3d uh this, this incredible it's very original artwork i've never seen it anywhere else and it's very labor intensive but she's also just um she she she's happily married. She lives in in uh, on the East End, but her her first husband uh, was tragically killed in a in an accident uh, in the Shinnecock Inlet, and uh, she has uh, he was known as Mister Apology. He's getting actually quite a lot of press right now, um, and Marissa has started a podcast about his apology line that was a big deal in the 1980s. Uh, Alan went around. Uh, New York City, putting up these signs for people to basically confess their sins it, it, to an answering machine. And uh, it sounds to me, I mean, she'll she'll definitely put me right if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like it kind of was like an avant-garde art project in a way. And I'm sure Alan had his own reasons for doing it. But, uh, but at one point, apparently, a killer called in uh, to confess their sins, and he became obsessed uh, with that, and it kind of followed him to the end of his day. So we're, we're going to talk about that Late. Yeah, but that's 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 part of her journey, um, and and I think it'd be fair to say we're all only as sick as our secrets. So uh, that's the thing that we'll get into then. But but really, um, what I'm uh, excited about is uh, you know uh, an artist of Long Island whose work and and entire journey as an artist kind of reflects Long Island. Yeah in some way. And I, I think that that's gonna be a really cool thing to talk about it. And then also, I think in her own personal journey, how she kind of moved uh, from uh, focusing under the water to into the garden, which I'm just poaching from her website. So <laughs> I don't act like I was like saying anything. I like, I, I know too much, oh God, but I know that. I was so. so impressed for a second. No, but you know what else is that, uh, you know, Marissa practices the same form of Buddhism actually that I do uh, um, and Nishiren Buddhism. And we have a saying, it's a Japanese form of Buddhism, Hendoku Iyaku. And I've used it before on this. It's one of the most beautiful expressions I know, and it means changing poison into medicine. And uh, and I think that a lot of her art, and she'll definitely speak to this, uh, arose from losing her her husband uh, in a tragic way. And, and that now this apology line uh, kind of being reinvented. And by the way, it's one of the most successful podcasts uh, out there right now. It's gotten right right ups on in Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, all kinds of places. And um to have her on is going to be a real honor, a really interesting exploration of art, obsession, and love. And what better day than Valentine's Day to talk about that stuff, right? And and apologies, which on Valentine's Day, you know, that's a great get back day. <laughs> Most guys, the reason why they buy the flowers is because they want to get back in the house. You know. Wow, you. I'm I'm so glad we haven't been in a relationship in like forty years. <laughs> Uh, high school, you were most guys, not all guys. I actually remember you showing up at my door with like a rose, and I totally fell for it back. In yeah, you know how hard it was to find a cemetery in, in uh, New York City just to get flowers. Oh God, sock! I love you. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with our guest Marissa Bridge talking about her art and the apology line after this. I'm in the bumble
Welcome back. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And our guest, uh, East End artist, Marissa Bridge. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And, and where are we finding you today? I'm in East Quag. Nice. We've um, we were kind of talking a little bit off off the air about your journey with Alan to to the to Long Island, but tell me a little bit. Let's back up even more. I mean, what what were you doing before before Alan? I mean, where were you living? Where what were you working on? What was your life like? Well, um, I always wanted to be an artist from when I was five years old. So I was making art. Always. I was one of those kids that was drawing, painting, crafting, sewing, you name it. And all of that uh, intention got me into an, a good art school in New York City. So I was able to convince my parents, uh, I grew up in the suburb of Chicago, mm -hmm. to let me go to Parsons School of Design in New York City. So wow. I went there for four years and graduated, lived in the West Village, and had a really amazing introduction to the art world in New York. Oh, I bet. And, 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 and like when, when you're in art school in, in New York and you're looking to be an artist, uh, I, I always find like the, uh, and I, the art community below 14th Street seems like a labyrinth. Like that it, it seems like who knows what and who, and who has, like it's, it's a half a marketplace, it's half a culture, it's half a lifestyle. What was it like for you navigating that? Well, it was very different in the early 80s. It was a much smaller community and it was right before Julian Schnabel and all the big time artists that came, living artists, you know, became successful. So it was a smaller community. And when I met Alan, I was 24. I was just two years out of art school. And he had been a very successful artist in Washington, DC and decided to move to New York and instead of being a big fish in a little pond, he wanted to be a little fish in a big pond. <laughs> so he, um, you know, he, and he also migrated with a group of friends, a group of artists from Washington, DC. So he was part of a collective of people. They were all about 10 years older than me and they were making inroads into the art world, but in a very small way, group shows in, in uh, galleries and things like that. Everybody in the, in the circle of friends that I found myself in was sort of starting their careers. Mm -hmm. So everybody was sort of in the same, in the same boat. No one was really well connected. At that and that point. part of New York then was not the, the glitzy Soho that it became. I mean, that was, if you actually look at, no, but if you actually look at it, it's like a, a, a quick way of, of having a point of reference, uh, Hannah and her sisters, the Woody Allen movie, he shoot some things down in Soho right. and, you know, shot that in the mid eighties. And when you look at Soho, you look at the streets, you look at the graffiti, you look at what it was like, it was much different than, than the, uh, I'll have a cappuccino and, uh, you know, get a $5,000 handbag, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't yeah. happening. <laughs> no, absolutely. When um, when I first met Alan in uh, the fall of 1980, Tribeca was really a wasteland. There was nothing there. We would go to the artist bars, Puffy's and Prescott's, which some of you may know. Uh, but that was it. It was a destination. You went there and then you went back to where you came from, which in my case was I was when I met Alan, I was living in Washington Heights in my own apartment. On the opposite and, side uh, of the island. Alan lived. Yes. Yeah, it was affordable. Him. That was the only place where I could afford a big one bedroom apartment that had room enough for a studio for me. So my bedroom became my art studio and the living room is where I had my bed. And so you were in Washington Heights, but you felt no urge to write <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> if only, right? Yeah, but you were, she was going downtown, you know? <laughs> she was a downtown girl. So uh, so tell us about meeting Alan and, and what struck you the first time you met, I guess. Well, um, I have to preface it by saying I was very influenced by the feminist movement of the 70s. And there was a moment in time for women, like post-early uh, feminism and pre-AIDS, where we had unprecedented freedom, sexual freedom. And I took advantage of that and my girlfriends, we all took advantage of that. And what that meant was that we would go to bars. <laughs> Bridget's giving me the thumbs up here. Well, I, I was, I'm, I'm a little younger than you, but I was there, man. I'm sure. I get it. <laughs> right, wait, oh, do you have anything that you want to apologize no about? 
Over Chris. <laughs> anyway, so you were you were you were doing the you go to bars, you go to bars and you, you play. Yeah, so we were roaming, you know, we were roaming and we were collecting experiences, shall That's we say. Awesome. And um, at that point, I was working at Henry Bendel's in the shoe department. And so I would hear about good parties and good clubs and good bars. So someone told me, go down to Tribeca because there's these two artist bars, Prescott's and Puffy's. So I went with my friend Susan and... Um, the first one, we went to Puffy's first, and I, I wasn't really feeling the vibe. And then we went around the corner to Prescott's, which was dark, kind of dirty looking and <laughs> packed with people. and had so much energy. And so we went in there. And um, Alan and his roommate at the time, uh, an artist named Yuri Schwebler, were sitting at the bar. So before too long, Alan came up, with me, uh, came up to me and asked me to dance. And that's how we met. And it was a one-night stand that lasted for a That's awesome. Yeah, no, actually, I met I met my ex-wife in a bar also. Um, and uh, it, it, to tell that little story, uh, I had a friend that tried to pick her up, and somehow that didn't work. But we met, and we ended up spending twenty nine years together. Well, so, when you trip over something really good, you got to keep stick with it, you know. And so, are you? You're working at Bendel's. You're living in, in Washington Heights. Yeah. Um, are you making art then? Yes. Absolutely. Yes, I was making art. I needed to support myself. So I was working full time at Bendel's, but it was not a high stress job. It was kind of a glamour job and um, a really fun job. Celebrities would come in and buy expensive shoes from us. So I met every celebrity, every top celebrity you could want it like Cher, um, Barbara Streisand, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. I mean, everybody came in there and that was a fabulous experience in and of itself. And uh, who, who had bunions, who had corns? <laughs> she can't tell oh, okay. that. She signed a, a yeah. NDA. I was Lauren Bacall's personal uh, salesperson, and she had amazing feet, I will say that. That's cool. Yeah. So um, what kind of art were you creating back then? Because I, I want to know about your, your journey, because your art has changed, and I want to know like what you were starting Yeah, with. well, at that time, I had become an abstract artist in art school. I think every student starts with painting realism. That's how you learn. You know, you do figure drawing, you do landscapes, you do still lifes. And then when I felt ready, I jumped to abstraction. So by the time I met Alan, I was painting all white paintings with just texture. And then I switched to painting all black paintings with just texture, heavy, heavy texture. Like Louise Nelson. Did you ever have a blue period? I did not. I went from white to black. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> You're like yeah. from A to Z, no letters in between. And then I hit a real dead end because when you're painting black paintings with no image, where do you go from there? <laughs> and so at the time I was in therapy, psychotherapy, and I started having a, a, a lot of dreams about underwater. Uh, I, I grew up on a cottage on a lake. That was our my parents' summer home. And I was having dreams about my siblings underwater and me swimming underwater. And I thought, you know what? This is a really good subject matter. It's, it's dark, I'm already painting black. So maybe I, if I follow these dreams and this dream imagery, I'll be able to get out of this. So I started going in that direction. And then after meeting Alan, um, he was a very avid scuba diver. So in 81, he said, let's, you need to take scuba diving lessons. And in 1982, I did my first dive up in Beaver Tail Point in Rhode Island, May 1st, frigid cold water. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds cold. It was, and I had not been certified yet. I'd had my classes, but it was my first actual dive in the ocean. And it was thrilling and frightening, and I found my subject matter. Yeah. It was dark, it was mysterious, it was everything I was looking for. So I, it took a long time to get my skills together, but I started doing under seascapes, as I called them. Um, starting with dream imagery and memories of the undersea world. And then I ended up getting an underwater camera and taking photographs underwater and using those as the basis for my paintings. And, and was there something uh, marrying in, uh, tonally to like the emotional aspects of the darkness and, the, and being under 
you know, uh, under a surface? Like, was there something that you were connecting with there? Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a psychological metaphor for the unconscious and for everything that's going on in our brains and our minds in our emotions. So it was a really rich subject matter. And I did that for many, many years until Alan died actually. And then I just couldn't keep doing it anymore because it was so associated with him. I was thinking that when you said about being underwater because um, Alan um, was tragically killed in a, in, on the water. I, when I, when he was diving, correct? And was hit by a jet ski. Yes. Yeah. And um, how strange and sort of foreboding in a way, and in a way beautiful that that was the imagery that you were, I don't know. That's, that's right. And, but, but also I can see how it's after that moment and that, that tragedy, it, it might've just been your entire relationship to your art uh, has to shift. Uh, it just has to, if you're human, right? And so uh, then, then it puts you in, I would imagine, a little bit in, in, in the wilderness artistically where uh, you, you might've been grappling for a little while with uh, what are you supposed to be saying and how do you process everything? So what happened? I mean, after, after Alan died and you could no longer really do the underwater seascapes, the underwater scapes, how long was it before you, I don't know, ventured to doing a different kind of art? Because it's so hard to switch, you know? It is. Well, I, it took me 13 years to return to art with a deep commitment. I always kept doing art, you know, drawing, painting a little bit to keep my skills going because I also had a decorative painting business. That's how I paid my bills. Right. So I needed drawing and painting skills for that. And, you know, it's something when you're an artist, you just have to do it. It's kind of like a, a necessity, but I wasn't able to do it with any sort of commitment for 13 years. And, um, uh, you know, that's just my, one of the things I was going to say is that I, I had survivor's guilt after Alan died. Like he died before he really could fulfill his mission with the apology line. He was about to take it onto the internet and, uh, he was killed and he was 50 years old. So it wasn't like he was, you know, at yeah. the end of a normal life. And I really felt guilty that I was alive and he wasn't. And uh, it took me a very long time and a lot of therapy to get over that. And so that was part of it. Part of it was that I couldn't bear to go scuba diving anymore. Right. Um, and then I started another life, you know, with a, a second husband eventually and two young, very young stepchildren. And I got very involved in that. Right. So it didn't uh, hurt as much to not be uh, creating your art because you were you were busy with nourishing your soul with a new life, which your soul need your soul needed nourishment at that moment. Exactly. I, I needed to. I, I wanted to have a child with Alan, especially as I got older. I was thirty eight when he died, and although you know living with the apology line the way we did, it would have been an impossible situation. And I knew that, but I was really, really grateful to meet someone that had two young children who were open to the idea of having a, you know, a stepmom, And that was really a huge blessing for me. And something that I did throw myself into trying to be the best step parent I could be. Let's talk about that for a second. Like, how do you, how did you navigate? How old were, were uh, what is your current husband's name? Joe. 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 How old were Joe's kids when, when you came into their lives? When I met Joe, they were one and a half and four and a half. Okay. So they were in the beginning of their consciousness. Yes. It must yes. have been good as far as uh, you being able to inter integrate with, with their lives. It was. I mean, there was never a problem. Uh, being with them they were always very open-hearted of course they're open-hearted with their mother as well yeah but they were very open to me yeah and there was never a problem um and also in the modern family they lived one week with us and one week with their mom so um we did have a little time off you know the weeks we didn't have the kids joe and i could develop our own relationship so um that was very helpful. That's also. beautiful. And, and what a wonderful healing journey to have two little souls like that, that uh, cling to you. And, um, and 
And how did it impact? I know you, you said you weren't committed uh, at that moment or capable of, of diving into the artistic process past a certain transactional place, if you will. Uh, but how did it impact your, 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 the artist inside of you? Well, long-term, maybe not short-term. Like how did that experience blossom into the garden that you now live in? Blossom and garden, good, good, good word. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to preface it by saying one thing I learned from living with Alan and the apology line and the aftermath is that art is very important, but people are more important. And the people in your life are the most important thing. And so I was just going along, being a stepmom, running my business, which I did do drawing. Sometimes we did murals and things like that. And one day my sister was visiting me. Uh, we had rented a house in East Quag before we bought our house. And she brought me a little cyclamen plant mm -hmm. as a gift. And I was just sitting around and I would always sketch, even though I wasn't a, an artist, a committed artist, so to speak. So there was nothing else to do. And I said, oh, let me just, I really don't want to draw flowers. Or I've, I don't want anything to do with flowers. You know, <laughs> that's not me. I'm just, you know, I'm more hardcore than that. I'm more serious Famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I, I started, I sketched this cyclamen and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Like, this is really cool. Like the shape of the flower petals is really, I like it. The leaves are really interesting. I'm going to make a little painting of this. So I made a little painting of it. And I thought, you know what? This doesn't look corny. This doesn't look cliche. This is, this is good. You know, this is good. And it's really beautiful. And, um, and I felt good that my sister had given it to me. I started thinking about flowers and I started to realize that that was a very healing thing for me to be painting because flowers are very symbolic of emotions. I mean, we give flowers at funerals, we give flowers at weddings, for birthdays, for Valentine's Day, at the hospital, when you just want to cheer yourself up or you want to be surrounded by beauty. And little by little, I started hooking into that energy and it saved me. I mean, it brought me back to my art in a big way and it, it filled my soul with the understanding of there's a quote from someone, I can't remember who, where the universe is in a flower. It might be Blake, uh, William Blake, but I got that, you know, I got that. And I got, I found the, the pathway back to myself and to my art through flowers. That's beautiful. I know that because we're friends and we're also friends on social media and stuff that you often post uh, photos of flowers like you go to the flower shows and stuff like that at least a few years ago and would post the most beautiful and and now you post the most beautiful close-ups of flowers so you sort of found a, as as he said you blossomed uh, as Alex said in the flowers and I've seen your flower paintings and they're they they remind me very much of kind of the botanical illustrations of of kind of almost Victorian times but you know with with more of a you know colorful and uh, paint uh, a twist in paint. And do you see uh, do you see flowers as a subject matter as as a metaphor, or do you see it more uh, see flowers more as the very embodiment of of the life cycle? Or when you say metaphor, you mean like a Georgia O'Keeffe like vagina flowers? Well, perhaps there's a feminine aspect to a lot of flowers, and she certainly uh staked your claim to that uh but you know i mean like for you like is there is it was it more of a, a just a visual interaction or or were you seeing a deeper meaning in it? well i think it grew i think at the beginning it was a visual interaction and entrancement with the color the beauty the the shape of them and it's grown over time i think that at the, the first few years i was really interested in getting the colors and the shapes accurate. I mean, again, going back to that art school mm -hmm. system where you start with realism and you try to nail that first right. because that's your foundation for your structure and your color and everything else. So I was more interested in the appearance of flowers, so to speak. And then as time went on and I did, I, I was able to observe in my own garden, the 
you know, the beginnings of flowers in the spring, the buds, the whole life cycle, the, you know, the blossoming in the summer and then how they die in the end. And um, I actually did a series of paintings of 35 paintings of the life cycle of an orchid. And I showed that at, uh, I had my first solo show in 23 years um, at Dodds and Eater in Sag Harbor. They used to have a, an art gallery there. And um, mm -hmm. it took me two years to complete that series, but I felt like that was me examining my life up until that point. You know, the, re the starting, going through the process, the blossoming, and then the decline. And um, wow. so that was sort of the, the, that exhibit was sort of the culmination of my exploration of realism in flowers. And now you do this paper rolling, this, this highly labor intensive flowers where you roll like, like someone would do, I, I hate to say, but like a nervous person would like roll up a piece of paper, you know, you just roll it between your fingers until it stays rolled up and you do, you know, hundreds and hundreds of those to create the petals of these three dimensional flowers that are almost always all white. Um, and, you know, how did you, how did you get into that? Because that is just such a, if I can say strange and unusual art form and it, but it's almost like going back to the, what you were doing uh, before with all white. So you went from these colorful, you know, flower uh, lifetimes, but yeah. How did you get into that? Well, after I did the realistic paintings and I did the, the series of the orchid, I realized that the, the business part of a flower is the center and the center is where <laughs> you make it sound so tough. Business part of a flower, yo. <laughs> well, I, you know, that's where all the action is. The sexual part of a flower. That's the attraction. That's the main event is the center. That's where it all happens. So okay. <laughs> I decided to focus in on that and see like, what was that about? Like the petals and all of the, the leaves and all that, that's so interesting and beautiful and distracting, but they're all there to make the bees go towards the middle. So um, I concentrated on the middle and right away when I started trying to make pieces based on flower centers, I realized I have to go three-dimensional. I mean, the center is three-dimensional. I mean, there's, there's, there's texture and there's depth. There's a, it's usually a mound of some kind in the middle with things spiking around it. So my first pieces were, were 3D with just the center and then I would paint in color, everything around it. But the centers became more and more important and the color became less and less important. I'm not trying to be uh, too insouciant or too playful unnecessarily here, but does this tie back to the feminism of the 70s that you were so attracted to? Like, is it, are you actually seeing this, like all of your life's experience kind of starting to uh, find reality in this concept? That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, I think it, as we get older, we, I, I sort of think of it as a spiral that you keep, you keep growing and your life enlarges, but you keep coming back to almost the same spot. Every once in a while, you're cir you circle around again and you're further out, but you're still in that same general area. So absolutely. It was a, it was a coming together of everything I'd experienced as an artist up to that point. Well, we're going to take a, a short break. And when we come back, we want to talk about how you finally got up, I guess the, I don't want to say finally, but got up the nerve or the, the bravery and gathered yourself to be able to deal with the apology line. We're going to talk about that, but also uh, Valentine's Day, uh, you had said it's it Alan's birthday. Yes, he would be 76 this year if he was alive. That's amazing. We had no idea. That's amazing. Well, did you have more pressure on Valentine's Day to give him a better gift? <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> That's so funny. Anyway, well, we're going to take a short break. We're speaking with Marissa Bridge, a local artist, um, and also now the podcaster responsible on Wondery for the Apology Line, which is right now one of the top Apple podcasts. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. We'll be right back. The following is a public service announcement from 88.3 WLIW-FM. If you're facing Alzheimer's disease in your family or concerned about your own memory problems, contact the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. Get educated, get help. 
and donate to help others. Alzheimer's Foundation of America, 866-232-8484 or online at alzfdn.org. Serving eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, this is listener-supported 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in Southampton, New York. Sundays on the East End. We're talking with uh, Marissa Bridge. We've been talking about her artwork and her incredible journey. And we want to kind of bring it back a little bit to your relationship with Alan Bridge, Mr. Apology and the Apology Line. You said he got you into scuba diving, but you were also telling a story before we went on the air about a boat and how you ended up on the East End. Yes. Alan was an avid scuba diver before I met him and he got me into scuba diving. It was kind of a must if I was going to be with him I needed to scuba dive. <laughs> and um, so we uh, we got married in 1984. And with some money that we got for wedding gifts from our families, we bought an old wooden boat, a 1964 cabin cruiser. It was a Broadwater brand, um, a very shallow boat, very, you know, shallow draft, very big inside, very roomy, um, not a good ocean going vessel, right. bobbed like a cork. <laughs> but um, it was a great boat, and we used it as a houseboat. We actually lived on it. We found a, a marina in Hampton Bays, and we kept it there for 11 years until his death. We had the boat. and But you didn't live on it that whole time, did you? We lived on it whenever we were out here. We, we had an apartment in New York City, but whenever we came out here, which was every weekend or as, as often as we could, sometimes for a week or two, um, we lived on it, yes. It, it had a uh, refrigerator, a little stove, a little bathroom, cable TV, courtesy of the, the person who owned the boat. Yeah, heard so. It was a great little house. That's amazing. So tell us how the Apology Line started and what was the, was it like an art project? How did it, how did, what was Alan's idea behind starting something where people would call in and uh, anonymously apologize for whatever misdoings or misgivings they might have or have performed? Well, Alan was an artist. He started out as a painter living in Washington, D.C., and then he decided that he was bored with painting and he became a sculptor. And the sculptures that he made had moral issues embedded in them. For instance, one was called the cooperation machine, where two people had to work it together to make a marble drop. And attention must be paid was another one where you had to keep turning this dial or the whole thing would fall apart and collapse. So the last sculpture that he made was called Crime Time. And it was a machine where you spun a wheel of chance and you put your hand in this tube and the wheel of chance would determine whether your hand got caught in there, which meant you were caught committing a crime or you wouldn't get caught and a marble would drop out and you'd get the spoils. So he said that that machine was his veiled self-confession because he'd been a lifelong shoplifter from when he was a teenager. Oh. And that making that machine really enabled him to give up shoplifting. So he was thinking, hmm, what else could he do that would help other people? What kind of machine could he make to help other people give up things? That's cool. 
Did you ever allow him into Bendel's? You knew he was a shoplifter. He had he had given it up by then. <laughs> okay. I don't think women's shoes were his thing, actually. <laughs> no, they were Andy Warhol's right, thing. Right. So, so he literally is taking the theme to the next place. That that if, if he has this emotional conversation going on inside, that he imagines other people have it as well. Then the apology line always becomes the the worldly embodiment of here's a place where you can start dealing with this, this, the weight of something you carry. Exactly. How small did it begin and how big did it become? Well, uh, it started out with just a telephone and an answering machine, a dedicated phone line. He did have his own private phone number, but he got a second phone line, which was expensive back then, you know, like 30 bucks a month, which was a lot of money to us. Um, and actually I met him one month after he started the line. So I wasn't there at the actual inception. Right. So, but he put the line together and he and his roommate, Yuri, went around Tribeca and they put up flyers asking people to apologize. And that very day they got callers. People started calling from the beginning and it started off, I'm guessing about maybe a dozen calls a day, but within two weeks, the Soho Weekly News had written a big piece on it. And that really started the ball rolling. The media always loved his project. So he was able to um, get a lot of traction out of the media and putting up posters. That's how he, he got callers. That's amazing. So now you, and I want to talk about your journey because you've been sitting on this stuff for years and years and years and only just recently right. kind of gathered the incredible fortitude to, to kind of memorialize him with this podcast. But along the way, the big, I guess, the big reveal is that a killer called. Somebody uh, called and apologized for murder? Yes. Well, many people called and said they commit committed murders. But um, this one particular person named Richie was a self-confessed serial killer. And he called for five years. And he had Alan on the ropes for five years trying to draw him out, trying to get him to stop, trying to delve into his mind and find out what he was thinking and why he was doing all this. And that was the main uh, event of the whole 15 years. I mean, Richie was the person, the one person that really got under Alan's skin and, and really affected him in a negative way. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, in, uh, just observationally, if he was still active, then his, he wasn't using the line uh, in, in that pure way of, 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 cleansing himself, he was using it in a cycle of his disease. Right, right. But but just to go back, the apology line was people leaving messages on an answering machine. Did Alan ever have any direct contact with Richie, or did he feel that Richie was kind of uh, playing a cat and mouse game with him? Well, from the beginning, Alan said on the line, if you wanted, if a caller wanted to speak with him privately, he would speak with them. And he did do that from the beginning. It didn't happen very often, but whenever someone requested it, he would do it. So yes, he did end up speaking with Richie offline. And, and uh, why, uh, did you ever ask Alan why he, he offered that? Well, I think that you have to remember back in those days, there were no cell phones. So the only communication was through this answering machine. And there was a big lag time between uh, when Alan would receive a message and when he could put it out. He uh, he started the line in 1980, and it wasn't until 1983 that answering machine technology had grown enough so that he could put an outgoing message of, pro of a program of apology tapes. So for the first three years, you could only call and leave a message. There was no way for you to hear what anyone said about your message or any comments on your message. But it almost begs the philosophical question when when somebody apologizes when somebody cleanses himself you know in confession uh do you need to know it's been heard for you to kind of release your guilt or is the actual act of doing it enough i think the act is what does it but marissa what do you think well the act is, uh, is what does it but people didn't just apologize on the apology line it be it was the first virtual community it was, you know, decades before Facebook, and people would spend months or years going over their problems and their issues and hearing commentary from other people and helping to resolve them. 
I mean, there, we have one caller that called for the entire 15 years who's in the podcast and, um, you know, it affected his life greatly. So yes, there were one-off apologies or someone who apologized, maybe uh, they had to call back a few times because they weren't able to say what they really wanted to the first time, Right. but it was much more than that. It was people calling with their problems and, and, all, and all kinds of and, things. And how, how did that interaction happen though? Where, so they would call, but then how would they? Um, how would they get the, the feedback? Yeah. Well, starting in 1983, Alan was able to put out a curated program of calls from the previous two weeks. So there was a two-week lag time. Like you leave a message and then two weeks later, you could hear the responses that people had to it. And then two weeks after that, if you responded to those callers, they would hear your response. And it wasn't until 1994 when Alan got a voicemail technology, which was not quite an instantaneous call and response, but you left a, mess, left a message, hung up, and then someone could hear it immediately, respond to you, they'd hang up, you could hear it. But that was towards the end of the project. Earlier, you said that um, you, had, you had wanted to have a child with Alan but that it would have been impossible with the apology line. Why is that? Well, our lives really revolved around the apology line. I mean, I tried to keep some distance from it and keep my borders up, but it was running day and night in our apartment. So, and the calls came in 24 hours a day. So there was really no way to shelter someone else from it. And Alan was so involved in it. I mean, for five years, he was talking to a serial killer. And there were many, many other people who had serious problems. And, um, and you know, the last years of his life after Richie, um, the line just expanded. He got three phone lines. Then he got a voicemail system. He started a zine that he self-published. So it was all consuming for him. And there was no way he could have been a good father. I mean, it's terrible to say, but not that he wouldn't have loved a child, but he wouldn't have, he hardly had time for me, much less a child. And so what, what, what was your moment of saying, I want to do a podcast now? Like, I, I want to take this source material and I want to use this as the jumping off point of a whole new expression. After Alan died, um, I realized that he left over a thousand cassette tapes of all the calls. So all the calls from 15 years. So I knew that was a very important archive and he left, you know, over 600 pages of, of his writings about it and all kinds of stuff. And the zine, the 10 issues of the zine. And there was just a lot of, of material. And um, over the years, people would come to me and say, Oh, we want to do a movie or we want to do a documentary or we want to write a play. And for one reason or another, these things would not pan out. And it wasn't until about six years ago that I heard my first podcast, which was Serial. And oh, sure. Sarah Koenig's big one. I she heard that podcast, which on paper sounds extremely boring. It's all these lawyers talking about a case and trying to get this guy a new trial. And it was fascinating. You know, Sarah Koenig, um, her 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 mom was Maria Matheson, who was married to Peter Matheson, and she lived in Sag, Sag Harbor, and we used to work together at the Star, just to give a little wow. you know, background there. So go ahead. Full Sorry. circle. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So when I heard that podcast, I said, this is it. This is for Alan's work, because it was an audio project, and he was... Uh, putting out podcasts every two weeks for 13 years. I mean, he was broadcasting over the telephone, right. a, you know, a biweekly program. So I knew that that was the way that that was the path that was going to go forward. And I also knew that I had to do it because putting his work into other people's hands had never worked out. And I just had to. And, and how was, how was Joe with this? That's what I was going to say, um, because I asked you that when we were on the phone together before this. How has Joe been with all of this? He seems Joe is extremely supportive. supportive of it. Yes, Joe. Um, Joe was always he wasn't jealous of Alan. He always recognized that Alan's work was important. And he said that when he first met me, Alan's presence was very strongly felt in my apartment. His sculptures were there, his paintings, the apology line material. So Alan was always a part of mine and Joe's life as well as Joe's ex-wife and the kids. I mean, you know, it's a mutual, you combine families. Um, yeah. 
And Joe's actually a producer on the podcast. He's very involved in the writing and selecting materials, along with the people from Wondery who really put it all together in a, in a very professional way. Right, but that's magnificent that you and Joe can actually uh, make new art right. out of the source material. So um, let's just go back because I know this is kind of the the part that people who listen find the most exciting, this relationship that Alan developed with Richie, which you feel pretty much consumed him until the day he died. What was it about it that consumed him? Not to give away anything from your podcast, but... right. Um, well, Alan was a, was a brilliant person, uh, a very inquisitive person. He had that artist curiosity in a very deep way. And he decided that this was an opportunity for him to learn about the criminal mind. And when you decide to learn about the criminal mind, it takes you into very dark places. And Alan was a petty criminal himself, and he had been a, a hunter he was a spear fisherman, scuba diving, and um, he shot pheasants out in East Hampton. And, you know, he he was a predator, a low-level predator. So he felt he was going to explore that part of himself mm-hmm. and find out what made Richie tick. And going down that dark rabbit hole was something that really changed him. When you have to face things about yourself and, and humanity that are very dark, it's a very difficult thing. And he wasn't prepared. He was not a psychiatrist. He was not a social worker. He wasn't a particularly, he wasn't a religious person actually at all. An artist. He was an artist and, and he was raised as an atheist. And so he didn't have any spiritual support system behind him. Um, I can imagine, you know, someone uh, who has a spiritual faith having, you know, a shield and armor to be able to go in to do battle with the darkness, but without those things, it's very difficult. Well, can we can we touch on that for a second? Not if it makes you feel uncomfortable, but you have somewhat of a spiritual nature. I know that you're a Buddhist. And do you feel that your uh, self-empowerment through that practice has helped you to be able to finally take a look at this and, and move forward and honor Alan's memory with the Apology Line podcast? Oh, definitely. I think it's given me the the courage and the determination to get this done because uh, the form of Buddhism that we practice, the SGI Buddhism, determination and setting goals for yourself uh, in service of other people and in service of a greater good is very important. So I knew that there was a lot of important lessons to be learned by Alan's story. And it gave me the the faith and the courage to go forward and try to tell it, try to find a way to tell it. Such an incredible story. Uh, we're coming to the end of our of our broadcast, but to touch on again, uh, it's Valentine's Day. We did not know when we when we booked this that that was also Alan Bridge's birthday. Uh, we've been talking with Marissa Bridge, um, and people. It, it's it's a six part series, right? The Apology Line on Wondery. Yes. And if people want to listen to it, you can find the Apology Line uh, with Marissa as the uh, narrator. Uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And um, is there anything, uh, Marissa, that you want to add before we go away and say bye-bye? <laughs> I would like to say one thing is that one thing uh, people can take away from the apology line is that we're all the same under the surface. We all have the same problems and we all hurt. We all have pain. And hopefully understanding our fellow human beings a little bit better will bring us together because we really need that today. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to see you. Uh, do you have a, a website as well of your artwork? I do. It's um, marissabridge.com. Marissabridge.com. Thank you so much, Marissa. Um, Alec, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Marissa. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, I, I certainly know I'm, I'm going to walk away from this conversation with a, a an appreciation, first of all, for for feminism um, a little bit more. And my mom uh, uh, was had a great career uh, going in the 70s as she raised family, the whole thing. I kind of grew up in a feminist household, uh, but that, that that's a, a marvelous uh, uh, thing to celebrate in, in, in somebody's journey. Um, I, I also feel like, uh, in a way, 
and this may be a little bit of a reach, but, it, but uh, Marissa uh, is really the seed uh, that then will sprout and, and maybe for the first part of her artistic uh, life, uh, she was uh, going down underneath her surface, but now she's exploded up above ground and you can see it in her art and, and even in this podcast of, uh, uh, that is, is blossoming and blooming. So everybody have a great Valentine's Day. Uh, you know, find and feel the connection. And if you don't have that connection uh, this year, uh, don't worry about it because uh, this year will pass and then there'll be next year. So, uh, you know, wear your masks, uh, you know, get your vaccines if you can, respect and love each other and uh, be well and stay well. <laughs>